Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso, and this show is meant to help you make creativity the filter for your life, redefine your relationship with fear, take it out of the driver's seat, step into the full essence of who you are, and claim your right to have a dream and take up space. And today, I have an incredible guest for you. Her name is Shelly Pikin. She's a Grammy Award-nominated songwriter, artist, and author, and you're going to love her. But before we get to that, I have a quick creative check-in. And even before we get to that, actually, I wanted to do the creative challenge. So last week, the creative challenge was to create anything, a song, a drawing, a Play-Doh sculpture, a meal that was inspired by the word blue. What I made this week was a song for this company called Happy Socks. They had reached out to me and asked to do a collaboration. And I could have just posted a photo, but I'm like, hey, I've been wanting to get into the jingle scene for a while because I'm really great at writing very silly, fun songs. And so I said, hey, would you mind if I, instead of doing just a regular picture, wrote a little song for you? And this week's creative challenge make something inspired by the word blue is what gave me the idea to reach out to them and to write that song because their socks are very colorful and positive. Definitely check it out. It's on my Instagram page at Lauren LaGrasso. And so my friend Steffi also wrote this beautiful poem. I need to get her permission to see if I'm allowed to share it with you. But if so, I would love to share it with you on the podcast next week and also on our Instagram page. So head over there, check it out. And join us in next week's challenge. Next week's challenge is to make something, literally anything at all, that's inspired by the word longing. And send them my way. I'll share them on our Instagram page and on the podcast. And it's just to give us a container to create in because it makes it so much easier when you have some guidelines. And this week's creative check-in actually came from this wonderful, amazing podcast that I've been executive producing called Unlocking Us. It's Brene Brown's podcast. And I have to highly recommend slash gently insist that you listen to this week's episode. It's a life changer. There's two guests. It's uh, Jen Hatmaker and Sue Monk Kidd. And Sue Monk Kidd wrote The Secret Life of Bees. She's this prolific author. And she said something that really blew me away. And it's so simple. And it's something we've touched on on the show, but it's something that's just extraordinarily easy to forget. And she was talking about, she's this prolific author. She wrote The Secret Life of Bees and a bunch of other books. She has a new book out called Book of Longings. And she was talking about one of the books she wrote. And she said something that, again, was so simple, but it blew me away. She said, and I like the subject, and it pleased me to write about it. So I did. And I think so often we're trying to figure out what will break through or what will make money or how we can get seen that we forget that we got involved in a creative exploit so that we could have a life and a love that we enjoy. And so I want you to really, especially as we're moving through this really interesting time when we have to slow down, at least to some extent, think about what pleases you and what moving forward you want to do. What pleases you? What makes you happy? What kind of work makes you happy? What content, what subject matters make you happy? 
follow those lines because when you really focus on that, it's going to lead you to your greatest success. And now to the guest. Shelley Pikin is a Grammy Award nominated songwriter, an artist, and author. She's best known for writing songs for the likes of Christina Aguilera, Mandy Moore, Meredith Brooks, Miley Cyrus, Sync, Brandy, Demi Lovato, and many more. She has an incredible songwriting resume, including one of my favorite songs, Bitch, by Meredith Brooks. Shelley had the first number one song of the new millennium with What a Girl Wants by Christina Aguilera. 20 years later, after an entire career of writing for other people's voices, she decided that it was finally time to step forward and put her songs out for herself as an artist. She did this by revisiting some of her most beloved hits with an album called 2.0, which will be out this summer. I wanted to have Shelly on the show because, number one, she is a songwriting legend and has written beautiful and unapologetic songs that detail the human experience with vulnerability and truth. Number two, I think she's an inspiring example of what it looks like to step forward after allowing others to stand in the spotlight, how to have a second act that is truly yours, and how good and freeing it can be to take up space and claim the largeness of who you are. From our conversation, you'll learn the backstory of her first hit song, why she almost gave up right before she got her first hit, how songwriting has changed in the last 20 years, how to know who to take creative advice from, why the universe responds when you follow what feels good, behind-the-scenes details of what it was like to almost work with Britney Spears, and why it can be an advantage to hustle and even struggle for a while before you make it. Also, please note we recorded this pre-lockdown, and we recorded outside in Shelley's beautiful backyard in Los Angeles, so you may hear a few little birdies chirping about and the occasional airplane. Now here she is, Shelley Pikin. Before we go into the intricacies of your career, I like to go back to the beginning. So when you trace the lines of your life and you look back at when you were a little kid, what was the first sign that you were creative? What was the inciting incident? Oh, you know, my parents got me a piano, a used piano when they noticed I was interested in music, that I would always surround myself with music. I was attracted to music. I started playing it. By ear? I started playing by ear and I started making up my own little melodies and then I'd get sheet music of pop songs that I loved and I started trying to write my own melodies and ideas over the chord progression of the pop song so that I already had a pre-established mood. I guess today you might call it infringement. (laughs) I mean, people do that all the time, yeah, though. Yeah, I mean, right? you, you can do that, actually. Yeah, you just have to you give them credit. It. Well, you can't copyright really a chord progression. Mm-hmm. I was making completely new melodies. and I was being inspired. Right. And certain chord progressions are, are evocative of certain moods, whether they're minor to minor or just all major or they have sevens in them, major sevens. And I just think I learned. I often think of it as a stage where I was tracing art with tracing paper and then or riding a bicycle with training wheels, but the tracing with tracing paper is more accurate because I was tracing the actual thing. And then I learned how to do it without the tracing paper in between. And I sort of knew how to put together a mood. Mm. 
So that was just innate for you. No one told you like, hey, this is songwriting. You just no. did it innately. Yeah, I didn't know it was songwriting. Was anyone in your family was playing? My grandmother was a piano teacher. My parents weren't musicians, but they loved music and they played music all the time. We had a turntable in our living room and every Saturday and Sunday we would have pancakes and eggs and they would just play soundtracks from musicals the whole afternoon. I guess that I absorbed it, you know, definitely appreciated um, beautiful melodies. How about just melodies, <laughs> you know, cause we sort of gotten away from, from that. I remember last year I read some, a couple of pieces about that, that so many hooks now are just one note, you know, the, the Kesha stuff, da, 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 and the Taylor Swift songs, one note hooks. I'm not judging it. I'm just noticing it. Why do you think we've gone towards such simplistic songwriting? Not just in the melodies, but also lyrically a lot of songs. I heard you talking on another podcast and you right. were talking about how when you go into a room now, you come in a lot of times with these complex kind of deeper ideas and people who are writing with you want those because that's what you naturally right. bring to the table, but they have to find a way to put it into modern vernacular. But it seems like even when I was writing my most recent album, a lot of people are like, well, no one's going to understand that. I'm like, well, I'd like to give listeners a little bit of credit. Yeah. But why do you think it is that everyone's turning towards simplicity? I, I don't know for sure, but sitting here just winging it, if I had a <laughs> guess, a little bit, well, this is going to get me in trouble, a little bit because of the anti-intellectual movement, that things mm. need to be so simple, kind of dumbed down. Technology, which made it possible to just press a button and have something repeat over and over, as opposed to meander someplace. Mm-hmm. Algorithms. One song <laughs> Those comes damn out. Algorithms. One song comes out, and it's a smash, and then everybody's trying to write something like that. I don't know. Just to take a little excursion. Now, when you're in writing rooms and people are veering toward that simplicity, how do you bring them on your wavelength and make them realize there's merit in the melody? I'm going to be very honest with you, Lauren. I'm not in a lot of writing rooms anymore. I got a little tired of taking a chance on another session that was going to bring that I'd come home at the end of the day and feel like, wow, mm. that was incredible song sex. I'm excited about that song and waking up in the morning, remembering it and wanting to revisit it. It just got to be not so much fun as it once was. I didn't feel like I was, writing meaningful stuff. We were chasing, doing a lot of chasing of the last hit on the radio. Mm. And that, that also has to do with algorithms. When I first started in the business, album cuts were very valuable and important. And they were nutritional value on the album. Maybe the singles were the entree, but the side dishes were very important. And when albums were selling, you could also make a living from album cuts when physical copies were selling. So when we got together to write, there was a much more open menu to write anything we wanted. Because if you didn't write something that would turn out to be somebody's single, it was okay. If you got on an album that sold, that went platinum, 
if you co-wrote a song with one person and owned your publishing, that was like $40,000. So we weren't so desperate to write that song that sounded like all the other Mm -hmm. singles. We just wrote something we really felt strongly about. And I just felt like it was deeper. Right. Um, It literally left room for creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Do not copy. Right. I'm not disparaging anybody that wants to do that. There's a talent in or in in the ability to recognize what is in the zeitgeist and what melodies and hooks are working and trending. If you're writing for a specific artist, what their high note is, what their low note is, how they like to end their phrases on this vowel or that vowel, there is a talent there is a craft to be able to do that. And sometimes I wish I had that expertise, you know, (laughs) but I think if I had to choose, would I trade what I am good at for that? No, because I am, I'm very moved when I'm writing something that I feel is moving. I move myself and Making a living has always been important and has always been a motivating factor, but it was never the reason why I was so immersed in music. It was because it made me feel good. And you're getting back to that now. We're going to circle back to this moment, but I want to know, how did you go from that little girl making her own songs over these common chord progressions to getting your foot in the door as a young songwriter, because I know you cut your teeth in New York. How did that happen? And also, what was your original dream? Did you want to be a songwriter or were you interested in being an artist or both? So that was an airplane going by from Burbank, (laughs) in case you're wondering. Thank you, Bob Hope Airport. (laughs) Shout out. Honestly, it's heaven. If you can ever fly out of there instead of LAX, do it. Yes. (laughs) Except, yeah. Mm -hmm. Except if it's a windy day, it's very possible that your flight will get grounded because their runways yeah it's it's teeny you get to walk Um, on it though it's cool (laughs) I never you know I'm a lefty I'm right-brained I never think as a kid I thought well I'm gonna grow up and be a songwriter in fact I thought any song I heard on the radio whoever sang it wrote the song which wasn't Mm -hmm. true especially back then I just loved songs And when I I went to college for something completely different, I went to college for like fashion merchandising and designing, buying and selling marketing. But I always retreated to my dorm room at night or a cubicle in the fine arts building with a, with a piano and, or just me and a guitar. That was my therapy. That was what got me through. When I graduated from college, I still didn't realize what I wanted to do or be. When you're a lefty, you're right-brained, and you're not really thinking so factually. You're just, like, feeling. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like I just, my whole life is a stream of consciousness. I'm just, like, going down this road and going where I'm feeling pulled to. But I came to New York. I had a couple of interviews in the garment district. I didn't really love the culture. I love the beauty of, and the construction of a garment. I love designing them and putting together and sewing them. But 
I don't know. I went to showrooms and it just seemed very impersonal and transactional. Um, and I was still coming back to music. I was still coming back to songs. And when I was going through a newspaper, remember those, <laughs> looking for a job, I stumbled across this little blurb for a songwriting group that met weekly in Midtown Manhattan. And I had come back to the city after college and I just thought, what is this? Like, who are these people? Because and you have never written with someone at that point no, only by yourself. I had never met a songwriter before wow. ever. Can you believe that? Because yeah, I actually can. It's, it's, <laughs> now I feel like, yeah, because of the internet and YouTube and it's just so much easier now for 10 year olds to be songwriters. I didn't know anybody that was doing this. And so I went to that group and I was like, oh my God. All these people have the same affliction and I never even gave it a name. <laughs> well, right, because that's why I asked you if you had anyone musical in your family, because I had a very similar experience growing up where I just, I was always writing music, but I never conceptualized that that was a thing, Yeah, you know, and it wasn't until I was 22 and I finally picked up a guitar because I'd just, you know, been like playing chords my whole life on piano, but not really ever being fully engulfed in it, that I was like, oh, that's what's been going on this whole time. And yeah, like finding my community, finding other people to write with and collaborate with. But it, it was seems like it was very powerful for you to find that community. And then how did you go from finding the community to getting your first foot in the door? So the community was very important. And the community introduced me to more community and more groups, more songwriting workshops. Um, and I... Um, I took one with a group of people. I, this was like a, an organized class outside of this first support group I found. <laughs> and there, this was, gosh, I'm going to be dating myself now, but it was probably in the mid eighties. And I have to tell you that three of four of those people out of the 10 that were in that workshop are still making music professionally. I don't know what it was. We were very, it wasn't like everybody was doing it. If you were doing it back then, you were probably destined to do it. And I started collaborating with people in that workshop. We were led or directed, guided down to the village where there was the bitter end, which is still there which was the other end and the bitter end. There was the Kenny's Castaways, all these places on Bleecker Street where you could go in on a Wednesday night and play for 20 minutes, get your yayas out, you know, work your stuff. And there was so much of that culture. Like there were all these singer-songwriters down there and that's all they were doing. And I thought, this is where I belong. This makes me feel... Feel. This makes me feel... <laughs> And the word on the street was that it was possible to make a living doing this. It was different than it was now because of all the physical. So, And by that, you mean physical copies of music. Right. Because yeah. everyone that sold earned you a couple cents. But I knew that wasn't going to happen right away. So I started waiting tables. There was a new Hyatt opening on 42nd Street, which is still there. Shout out to the 42nd Street yeah. Hyatt. It was called the Sun Garden. And I was a waitress in that Sun Garden for three years while I was working my sh stuff. 
co-writing with all these people from different groups. And then I sort of graduated into their singer-songwriter lounge. That was awesome because now I'm playing a piano bar. It was amazing. And I was making a living, as far as I was concerned, as a musician, which was awesome. And then our little community discovered a man named Rick Wake, who was a British producer who came to the States and had found Taylor Dane. Mm, I brought Taylor into Arista and got her signed. And so we were all fervently trying to write for her because he was friendly and he was open to listening to material. And I wrote a song with a friend for Taylor. And we sort of modeled it, speaking of chasing hits, after Tell It to My Heart and a lot of dance stuff that was coming into vogue at the time. It was kind of bombastic what we wrote, but we thought this is kind of, this is what she's going to want. This is what she's going to want. But I always tagged a second song on my cassette (laughs) before I pitched it because God forbid they didn't like the first song. Well, let me just put a second song on there. That's totally different because maybe that'll be the bag. And would you tell them that there was going to be a second song on there or just kind of like make it it a surprise? It was labeled. Cool. So I had my first song on there. And then I stuck on this song called Carry Your Heart, which I wrote by myself. And uh, I played it for Rick. And he was like, I don't know about that first song, but that second song's a winner. And that's the one she cut. And that sort of got me started. So that was your first recording. Right. And I thought, sure, it was going to be a single. Because Billboard reviewed it and said, this is the song to watch. But it wasn't a single. And I had gone to lunch with Evan Lamberg who was now, who was a tape copy guy at the time. And now he's head of Universal. And he said, Shelly, you know, you got to be patient. I have a writer who waited 10 years before they had a single, 10 years of album cuts. And I said, oh, Evan, (laughs) that is not going to happen to moi. Look how close I came with this first one. But that's how long it took. I had 10 years of album cuts before I had my first single. So how did you handle that 10 year gap? And like, how did you keep going in those down moments when it felt like everything was against you? I was making money after that first album cut. I would get, you know, 10 a year album cuts. Wow. And I was paying my rent in the city. I had a, quarter share in Fire Island. I was going out for sushi on Friday nights. I was going on a couple vacations a year. I wasn't, you know, living the dream. I was living the dream. That was pretty dreamy. That's a good life. That's really dreamy life. You know, songwriters can't do that now on album cuts. There are no album cuts. So I was frustrated because I wanted to hear a song I wrote on the radio. On the other hand, I had a really nice life. And I'll, I'll tell you something else, Lauren. I think that writers who get a first really big hit from their first song might be very lucky and very rich very quickly, but it's not going to be doing a service to their craft because I, over that 10 years, I got better, Mm -hmm. you know, I had to constantly make sure I was getting better because I wanted that single so much. So I think if I got it too quickly, I might think, ah, 
I've got what it takes and I don't have to improve. Right. So I think actually that that might be why I'm still doing it where I've seen a lot of writers get a hit too fast and they burn out in three years. They can't get another one and it's, it's over. And you know, no matter the industry, there is a real emphasis and sexiness placed on the young singer songwriter or the young entrepreneur or the anything that's like young and somebody who's made it. There's a real like pedestal those people are put upon. But I agree with you. I think it's so important to be in the struggle or if it's not the struggle, be in the grind of getting better and better and better. And then the success is so much sweeter when you get there. And it's and it lasts, cause, yeah. Because you're not basing it on, well, I was in the room with so and so, and they're a great writer, and I'm going to go on their back, or I'm in the room with an artist, and they're going to cut my record no matter what. I mean, we were getting songs cut that we didn't write with artists. We were pitching songs, and the best song, the really great songs, got on records. So when I look back, I'm grateful for those ten mm-hmm. years. I, I it felt like everybody around me was having singles except for me, you know. But was there ever a moment in that looking at everyone around you and seeing Yes. Where you were like, wait, yes. Does this is what does uh, this mean about me? It's uh, the moment was right at the ten year mark. Wow. When I was like, oh my God, maybe I should go back to waiting tables again. Okay. And then bitch happened. <laughs> okay, we're gonna get into that. So I call that moment the creative crossroads. And it's in almost every single person's story who I talk to where they have the moment where they're like kind of at their lowest low where they're like, uh, either the universe God is telling me that I should give up and go in a different direction or I have to double down, go in a different direction with this particular thing I want to do and go toward it even harder. So how did you pick that second lane? How did you know that that was your path? It picked me. Tell me how. I remember having conversations with Adam saying, maybe I should quit. And Adam is your husband. Yes. Sorry. Maybe I should go back to waiting tables. But while I was ruminating about that, I was still taking sessions. I was still moving forward. I was still trying. And I was coming home one night from a session And I was really depressed about how long it was taking. Would I ever have a hit? And I stopped at a red light and I was blowing smoke rings out the window and I was in a real funk, you know, I was just really down. And I had this thought, I hate the world today. I just hate the world today. And my stream of consciousness was, and I'm going home to my boyfriend who I lived with at the time and I'm still married to (laughs) and he's going to have to deal with me in this mood when I get home and God bless him. He loves me no matter what, even though I can be, I know I can be such a bitch. And when I had that thought, I was just like, Oh my God, could it, could we, could I, could we, could that be, would they play it? You know, but I had recently met Meredith Brooks. I went to one of her shows. I thought it was a no brainer. I thought she plays, she sings, she looks great. I think she needs a song. 
She needs that breakout song. And I knew I needed to write that breakout song with someone who needed the breakout song. So I called her, you know, and I said, I have this idea. And I knew a little bit about her. I knew we had a lot of in common. We were both Geminis. We both <laughs> had a lot of different emotional ups and downs. We related to each other a lot like that. And I thought if anybody could write, if anybody was going to get this, I'm not going to have to put words in her mouth, you know? So she came over and I told her about the idea and we sat in a little room in my other house in Laurel Canyon and it was just line, 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 line. It was like tennis. What you does know? that feeling of being in a creative flow, like, can song you describe sex. it? It feels like song sex. And what does that mean? It feels like you are moving with somebody else, gyrating with them um, in a musical and lyrical way. You are working towards, you are working with each other. You are responding to their input. It really is like sex. When I talk about that, sometimes in my show, people laugh because it is funny and it's meant to be funny, but it's really, I get it. It's really yeah. the truth. It is like you are just, if you are good, if you are a good pairing, it's just, you're doing it together and it's working. And when you're done, you just want to do it again with that person, you know, right. And we were in that room, I'd say for two hours. Wow. She was holding the guitar. She was playing. And when she was done, you know, we thought, that's pretty good. Is anybody going to play it? And and she took off, went over to the home of a producer friend, Geza X, came out the next day with a blazing demo. And this was the era of Alanis. So the song was hit you over the head. The production was just like right in your face, like Alanis. She got a record deal in like 24 hours on the basis of that song. The record label was concerned with how are we going to get this on the air? Mm -hmm. Are they going to let us say, like, you know what? That is so, you know, Elton John's done it. The Stones have done it. Why can't a chick do it? You know, when you think yeah. back, it was really, it shouldn't, like you're saying, it shouldn't have been such a big deal since there had been a precedent yes. set, but that song is such a revelation for so many reasons. I think, yes, Alanis was out and doing her thing, which was very aggressive and in your face, but when you see a woman like come, because I watched her Jay Leno performance in preparation for the interview, and she comes up there guns blazing with that guitar and playing this aggressive guitar solo and singing in a way that's you're saying, not... You're saying um, Meredith or Alanis? Yeah, I'm saying Meredith. Oh. And comes up there with that guitar solo and singing in this aggressive way that's not necessarily like pretty, quote unquote. It's She's got a beautiful voice, but it's like in your face. Yes. And the words are so... It's true. It, it paints women as people, which was so rarely done up until this point. Women were pretty and women were on a pedestal, but we weren't painted as people complicated. Yeah. But why does it make it okay for the Stones and Elton John to do it, to say the word on the radio without question, mm -hmm. without well, any bleeps? And what did they say when you challenged them with that? Oh, the label was concerned with it too. It wasn't the label, it was radio. Mm -hmm. But K-Rock played it. Mm -hmm. 
and then everybody else did too. It's so powerful, that song. What do you feel the impact of that song has been on society at large? I didn't think about this for a long time. After, I'd say like five years after it was out there, I told myself, well, you ha- you can't really talk about it anymore because it's five years old already. And it's going to sound like you just want to talk about that song because you want to stay relevant or nothing else is going on. And so I tried to talk about more current things. But when I wrote my book four years ago, and I, when I reminisced and got nostalgic about that, women started coming out of the woodwork telling me how much that song meant to them. I don't know why I was so oblivious to how powerful that was in culture, how Mm -hmm. culturally resonant it was. It's almost more so, unless it's my imagination, now Mm -hmm. than it was five years after it was written. I don't know if it's because of Me Too. I don't know if it's because women such as yourselves were young, were much younger back then, and now you recognize that song in the way it was intended, and then it was just a chant Mm-hmm. where you know you thought you were saying something dirty i don't know but i would say cherished it immensely when we wrote it and then we got a grammy nom and we got all kinds of recognition then it sort of was in the background of my thought process mm-hmm. my career my timeline and now i talk about it all the time and i don't feel like it's dated and i don't feel like it's irrelevant I think it's more relevant now than ever. And that's what I meant. And so why is that? Because we're finally on a larger level starting to realize all the things that your song talked about. That's why I was trying to say when I said it painted women as people. I think very rarely in pop culture have women been viewed as full human beings. We have been sexualized or made into the Madonna role. Very few times have there been, besides in like the past few years, have there been women who were flawed and beautiful and angry and grateful and all the things that you go through in that song. And when I was little, it wasn't that I liked saying like the expletive. It just felt good to sing. And I don't know why. Okay. But when I look back on it, I think it was because I was able to express something that I never could have put my finger on right. in 1997. Right. It feels like yeah. I should feel this way. Yeah. And one day I'll know why. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But right now I'm just going to sing it because, yeah. yeah, I don't know. And when I was singing it on the in the car drive on the way here, I did start crying when I was singing oh. it because it just, it made me feel seen. And I think oh. that you are the start of women being able to claim the entirety of who they are with that song and women being able, I mean, the other thing is too, like I was watching your songwriting reel and all these amazing hits, what a girl wants, which I know you've done an incredible rendition of, and we're going to get to that. You did Mandy Moore. I want to be with you. All these songs that have this really forward facing female perspective that is just honest and unapologetic and true. And I think that a lot of times, especially in the in the music industry, even today, there are these like empowering songs, but then you look to see who the songwriters are and they're all men. 
And (laughs) instead of, instead of it being a man interpreting what it might be like to be a woman, Uh it was a woman telling the truth. And that's why I think what you've Uh done and continue to do is so powerful. Thank you. That's a wonderful tribute. And I don't really see myself clearly from, from an outside perspective. Um, I like the unapologetic, the confessional and unapologetic, self-identifiable yeah. person. It's funny that you say that because when I saw Debbie Lovato sing on the Grammys, mm. I thought, what a powerful song that is. And she kept saying, and I, when I wrote this, when I wrote this, and then I checked the writers and there were about eight writers. Now I want to go back and see if they were men or women. Yeah. But how about men or women, just eight writers having to help you say what you need to say? I've always been that way for artists, but it was the artist and me one-on-one finding something, bringing it out. I don't know. To have eight people help me. Do you think, though, that it's partly due to the fact that the standards of what makes somebody a partial owner in the song have changed? Like producers are now getting part of the credit, you know, like someone changes one word and now they're a big songwriter. Whereas before that might be considered advice. Do you think that's a piece of it? Yes. Well, I think that songwriting culture is that it's more like a party everybody in a room and everybody contributes it if you and if you're coming up in this culture it's cool with you you don't care they just all divide it up it's a harder way to make a living and you know i just wonder if i'm so grateful that songs like bitch and what a girl wants are still sort of in the zeitgeist they're still i'm still earning a living from them will songs that are written today, which are sort of here today, gone tomorrow, because there's so much content and they're so replaceable. Will somebody who wrote a hit song today still be able to be looking back on it in 20 years, talking about it in the same way? I think some, but not as many, not nearly as many. I don't think. So I'm really grateful to be sitting here. God, that song's still getting synced. I just had a request for it to be in a a new Reese Witherspoon produced TV show and Mark Isham is scoring it and Ruby Amanfu has cut it. I think it's going to be like a five minute. Wow. That's amazing. Version. I'm so grateful for that, that it's still relevant. It's still wanted. It still makes a difference. It definitely does. And I just think it's so interesting that like you weren't conscious of the fact that that's what was coming out. You know, it was just like you were just speaking what was on your heart. That's right. What was the process like of writing that song, What a Girl Wants? What a Girl Wants. So those words were written down on a receipt and I got together with my friend Guy Ben and he was just sort of playing around on the keyboard and... We fell into this groove and I thought, you know, those words I wrote on that receipt, they had this happy kind of thankful feel to the person in your life and this music feels like it would go with that. You're looking for the Mary. 
And we started just putting it together. Guy was always easy to be with and easy for me to write with and just jam with. Mm-hmm. And we could be jamming for hours and then something would fall out. We'd be like, that's hooky. There was a what a girl needs before the once. It went, what a girl oh, needs, what a girl wants. So interesting. Yeah. And the rhyme scheme was different. Whatever, da, 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 in your arms or something like that. We made like a little cassette of it. And I woke up the next morning because that was always the test for me. Did I wake up in the morning? Was it the first thing I thought about that song? And if I played it, was it something I wanted to revisit? ASAP. Could I just not be able to wait to jump back into it? I loved it in the morning. And we played it for Ron Fair, who asked us to make the switch and the what's and the, in the wants and the needs. Isn't it funny how something so small can make such a big difference? Well, I think for him, it was that the needs felt like a needy word and the wants was a sexier word. And then what a girl once there was this alliteration. So he recognized that. I wasn't sure at the time, but now looking back, I think he was right. When you're writing, because this is something that I think a lot of creative people struggle with is when you are getting notes, how do you know whether to take the advice of the person who's giving you notes versus... it rings a bell. Okay. And it did ring a bell for you at that time? Okay. It didn't feel like that's ridiculous. It sort of made sense. And if I may be very honest, he was thinking of cutting it with somebody that was going to be making a record. So it wasn't like, oh, you know, I'm an aspiring artist and someday I hope to get a record deal. Would you change that line for me? There were a lot of pop stars coming out of the musketeer world. Mm -hmm. And I had heard her sing and I knew she sang great. She was already hooked up with a label. Christina. Yeah. Yeah. So... And was she the only one that was being considered for the song? Or were there other people the song was shopped to? We must have pitched that song like 20, 30 times and got really? rejected. Not rejected. You know, yeah, it just about, wasn't right for them. It's not yeah. the right fit. Um, sometimes I think with a hit, you just get lucky. It's the right song at the right place at the right time. So when the culture is that songs are being solicited by labels, which it's not anymore, but when it was, it behooved you to just... Pitch the shit out of your songs. Mm-hmm. Pitch everywhere. I mean, it had to make sense. You weren't going to pitch an Alanis song to Celine Dion. But pitch your stuff. Get out there and throw as much spaghetti on the wall and eventually something's going to stick. Yeah. And, I mean, it did stick. It was the first hit of the new millennium. It was the first number one song yeah. of the century. Yes. And that's what we've been celebrating at the turn of this year, 2020, which makes it a 20 year anniversary, which is just like uh, hard to believe. And for that anniversary, you finally asked yourself, what does a girl want? What does this girl want? And you realized what you wanted was to step forward with the music that you'd written with your own Own voice. voice. How did you come to that decision? When I wrote the book, I realized that when I was working on things that mattered to me, that felt good, the universe responded in very positive ways. Mm-hmm. Like that book, the audio version got a Grammy nomination. Did I ever think that that was going to happen when I sat down to write it? I wasn't even sure it was a book when I, I just needed to write. And because I think I was following my truth unapologetically, yes, <laughs> I'm going to incorporate that. 
that all came together and I was rewarded. And I realized after the book was over, it's not like the business had changed so much. It's not that, that like I wanted to get back in rooms. If I could get back in a room with Adele, I would get there. But there's a whole new generation that has taken over those rooms. I still went to collapse, but I wasn't enjoying myself as much. And I thought, well, what? The book was great. What can I do next? What What would really bring me joy? It's sort of like Marie Kondo. Mm -hmm. What sparks joy? When I thought of the idea of making this record, it always made me happy. Mm -hmm. Like I often say, I didn't expect to be the new it girl. I felt like there was an authenticity and there was a story. And I thought it would inspire creative people who were more mature, who didn't want to stop being creative. And... I don't know. It was just a lot of fun saying, how can I reimagine these songs in a totally different way that still feel like the truth? Well, really, it's putting them through your vision versus whatever was right for the particular artists that originally interpreted yeah. them. And that's incredibly exciting, but it's also really brave. I mean, to change course at any point in our lives or our careers when we've been known a certain way or we've known ourselves a certain way, especially when it's kind of been like a little inkling on our heart for a long time to step forward with that, it requires a tremendous amount of courage. What did you actually have to mentally do to get the courage to go through with this? And what would be your advice for someone else who has a project or a dream on their heart that's kind of in the same vein? I think you just jump. Mm. I think you just... You don't necessarily have the courage yet. I also made sure to reach out to people who got me. I went where the love was. Who didn't flinch when I said, I'm making my own record. And they didn't go, really? Are you sure? Aren't you too old? How are you going to? They were just like, excellent. You should have done this a long, let's go. When are we getting started? That sort of gave me a lot of, I don't know if it was courage. It just felt Support, right. you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's, it sounds like life was lining up to yeah. support you to make this happen. Right. Well, you know, there's a book I talk about often called The Alchemist. Oh, yeah. Do you know that I've book? never read it, but I've oh, heard about it. Girl. I'll check it out. That book. But it's a simple story of this young boy who has a dream. This is just going to sound so generic and cliche. A young boy who has a dream... And goes out there to make it come true. And whenever he believes in himself strongly, the universe reciprocates. As they describe it, the universe jumps into a current with you mm. and makes it happen. But I see it as they reciprocate. And as soon as you start doubting yourself and you pull back... So does the universe. So if you ever realize that you're just gung-ho positive on something and everything's falling into place and you're hitting all those green lights, that's what it is. You know, I really believe that. And I already feel good things happening. Like we did this show last night at H Club and invited a bunch of music supervisors and nobody said what the hell? You know, they all came up to me and said, what a great idea. Incorporating the songs and the stories. And I think I'm inspiring people. 
And when they tell me that they're inspired, there were people laughing and there were people crying. Why do songwriters write songs? We want to touch people. We want to move people. I call it shifting the universe in just some small way. We want to make a difference, change people's lives, give them a song that will help them process grief or a breakup or joy. So it seems like you had, you just took the leap, which is great. Right. And you had courage. You, and you I had was the born wind. with courage, that's, girl. That's beautiful, but not everybody is. So yeah. we need to give advice to those people. Well, so what would be your advice for somebody who's struggling to believe in themselves? Because I do think sometimes there is well-placed self-doubt when, when something's not quite right. But a lot of times people hold themselves back just because they're afraid. What would be your advice to those well, people? Now, here's the thing. What if those people are afraid because they don't have the goods? Well, that's what I would call well-placed self-doubt. But there's a lot of people your who are talented and have what it takes and are sitting in a basement because they're scared. How do we reach those people and tell them that they can do it? If they have the goods, but they have isolated themselves and can't break out of that isolation, I would say that there's a chance that they shouldn't because half of this business is just being like a bull in a china shop. You have to have the goods, but I think there are more people that make it simply because they believe in themselves and and don't necessarily have the best song than people who have the best song who don't believe who 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 can't get out there and do it. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try if you really, really think you've got it. If you really think you've got it, then you've got to practice. It's like when you have anxiety. My daughter has anxiety. She's this great girl with so much to offer. But every time she gets a panic attack, she's got the skills, the breathing, the meditation, the messages to work on it. And she survives and she comes out of it better for it having fought the fear. But you've got to be able to do that. And mm -hmm. if you can't, this business is just so competitive, more competitive than it was when I was coming up. And it was competitive then. So if there's something else you love to do, if there's something else you're interested in, my advice would be to do it. Yeah. I think I was more like going for the tactics you just gave that your daughter uses. Cause a lot of times it is like mental stuff that we're dealing with, right? It's anxiety. It's a feeling Stage of not fright. being good enough. So like, those are some great tactics that you gave. Try meditation, practice breathing, go to therapy, write in your journal, get a friend who will go play, do an open mic with play you. Play small gigs. Yeah. And play small gigs, out. get feedback. Yeah. You know, if, if you're sitting in a room, I've played in a room with three people. Yeah. Um, and sometimes oh my God. those can be your best shows because you learn something. And if they're clapping, that empowers me. Right. Oh, my God. I'll never forget. I went to, I think it was a women's march at Pershing Square. And they asked me to play at Pershing. And they gave me a time slot. But the parade had not yet come in. And I was up. <laughs> there was nobody there. There was one girl who I was playing bitch and she like came from the side she was there for like a picnic or something and she was just I was up on that stage of Pershing playing bitch and she was like yes you go and I was like she's all I needed yeah she got me through that 
set, you know, I was like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. But, you know, play for small crowds, get a reaction Mm -hmm. that can sort of lift you up. You've got a 22 year old daughter. I do. And while you were in the midst of pursuing this incredible career, you had a little baby. I did. And Nicole, your publicist, told me this story about how when you were in a songwriting session, you had to like go out and pump and then come back. Is that true? <laughs> like, I want to know, especially back then, because I think it's a little bit more friendly for working moms now, right. but it was not friendly back then for working no. moms. How did you I make that Nicole work? I think Nicole got it. I think, I think Nicole is thinking about when I went to write What a Girl Wants, when I had just had her and I wasn't going to all the sessions that I was getting called for, but I got called to work with my friend Todd and Christina, who we didn't know was Christina at the time. And it was the day I was like, I pumped all this breast milk. <laughs> I was like, okay, baby's staying home. I'm going to the session. Here's the bottles. Go. And I did take her to one session with me. And I remember it was impossible. Mm. I mean, I was changing her diaper and trying to do vocals. She wasn't sleeping. I was like, this is not doable. In fact, for the first five months that we had her, we hadn't hired a nanny. And then I realized I need to hire a nanny. So we got somebody three days a week from nine to four. That was my window. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, from nine to four. You want me? You know, we just had bitch, so I was doing, I was hot. I was hot. Yeah. You want me? That's my window. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, nine to four. I can't work nights. I gave up a lot of great sessions. I did, but I have no regrets. What would be your advice to other women who are in a creative field who either have children or want to have children on how to manage that tug of war, really? I think you have to have a balance. I gave myself those windows. I always went where the love is. I found people who loved me enough to work those hours. And I wanted to be home for breakfast. I wanted to be home for dinner. I wanted to be home for bedtime. So my advice is figure out what your balance is. Figure out how much you could give up and think about how you're going to feel in the future if you gave up more than you wanted to and you can't get that time back. But we're all different. I mean, I think that there are women with full-time jobs who manage just fine and have a lot of quality time on the weekends and are accessible to their kids. And some kids don't need as much parenting. I mean, all kids need parents, but they don't need as much hovering or looking mm-hmm. after. But you have to ask yourself, what is it you need? How how much do you need to be there? And make some choices and do the best you can without being able to project that you're going to regret. And men need to do that too. Oh, yeah. I mean, I see so many more stay-at-home dads these days. It's It's awesome. It is. I think in general, our society is becoming much more egalitarian, which is beautiful. It's still so much pressure on the woman, whether that's, I think it's a mixture of self-inflicted and societal pressure. But I have so much respect for you because I want to have a child and it gives me great hope that you were able to raise a wonderful daughter while pursuing this career. You know what? I never had a plan. Mm -hmm. You make it work. Yeah. But somehow 
if it's meant to be, if you want it bad enough, you make it work. You sleep a lot less. You trim the fat a lot. I know before Layla was born, I would work on a song for days. But when I had her and I didn't have as much time to work on it, I would just recognize the weak lines sooner. I'd be like, why are you trying to make that line work? You know, it doesn't get rid of it. Find another one. Move on. I was able to edit myself faster because I just didn't have the time. That is so interesting. And I, you know, it's interesting too, because I think we tell ourselves these stories, at least I always have like, oh, I need to have my success and then I'll have my baby. But yeah, a you lot can't of, make that plan. no, it's true. And a lot of the people I talk to, Shelly, like they have their greatest success after their child. Yeah, and I, I wonder pregnant, if that's part of why. I got pregnant. It was September of 96 and bitch came out April, May of 97. Isn't that interesting? We were, we were, we were like, how are we going to support a baby? Bop, 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 bop. And then we just said, it'll work itself out. Yeah. You know? So more of the story is you can't everybody just have, have kids. Now. <laughs> you, you can't go through life yeah. and only make moves when you have the answer. Yeah. The beauty sometimes is Taking not knowing yeah. the unknown and having life reveal itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how we learn, right? Yeah. And that's definitely been a through line with your story as we go through it. You know, you took the leap so many times. I'm still leaping. You're still leaping. I love it. You know, you talked a lot today about how the business has changed and how it was disheartening and you had to like kind of reevaluate and make your own different path. And I think a lot of people, no matter what industry they are, are in, they have their dream and they have the love that they have for their dream, but then there's the business side of it. And a lot of times, because those two things are so intertwined, it's hard to separate your love from the business bullshit that you have to deal with. How do you make sure to focus on the love? And what's your advice for other people to do the same? Well, it's a balance. That's that word again. Mm -hmm. You know, it was always like a balance. My soul, my wallet, my soul, my wallet. I have the personality to deal with the business, but when I'm behind my instrument, I have to forget about the business. If I don't, I'm not going to write my best song, but my best songs, when I think about it, when I look back and I go, okay, well, I've written 3000 songs, but the five that were the biggest songs were the ones that were unapologetically. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the ones that were just like, this shit is real. I'm not thinking about what does Kelly Clarkson want to say? What's trending? It was just something I was feeling passionately that somebody else that was making a record related to. So I think it's important to be able to do both. But when you're writing to block out the extraneous shiny objects, Hmm. What does that mean? To block out the A&R people who are saying, oh, we've got a new artist and she's Whitney Houston meets Kelly Clarkson or we don't want any ballads or we're not looking for material just to, to not hear the noise. 
just forget all the parameters and everything anybody's telling you and the competition and your best friend just got on this record and you didn't. It's like, it's those moments that you are just so clear and you can channel universal concepts Mm -hmm. with very unique point of views. It's when those things come through. Do you see it as a channeling? I have channeled some songs. Not a whole lot. Which Um, ones? Any we know? um, I channeled a song called Love is War, which I originally wrote for Brittany. And I was sitting at my piano and I was just thinking about her and hearing her voice and how troubled she must be. And I don't have the same life as Britney Spears, but there have been times in my life that I'm sure I could relate to what Britney has reportedly gone through. And I try to tap into that. That song, it just felt like it fell from the sky. My hands were on the keyboard. Somebody was like moving them. And it was slotted to be recorded by her. I got together with her in the studio to write And the label wanted me to play it for her while we were writing because the writing was not even that important. They wanted her to hear the song. And when was this? This was, gosh, at least 10 years ago. And it was all set to go. She was going to do it. And at the last minute, she decided, or this is what I was told, and I believe it because it sounds right, it was way too vulnerable for her. Oh. She had just broken up with Justin. Okay. Or, oh, no, with was um, Kevin. Federline? No, no. Who's the guy from In Sync? Justin Timberlake. Yes. Okay. I'm um, thinking. Am I? <laughs> am I conflating him with Justin Bieber? And I think it was too real. Uh, I think it was really too real. Love is war. What are we in it for? Why do we play the game? Why are we keeping score? You and I. We were born to fight. Like so many times before, I'm lying here on the floor. Love is war. Wash my hands. Wash my hands. I can't, I can't, I can't say the words out of the song, but, um, lying here on the floor, like so many times before, love is war. I'm lying here on the floor. All I want is more. Love is war. Anyway, so I was heartbroken. That was a real blow for me because I thought this is a perfect marriage. If she cuts this, it's going to be fucking huge. Talk about authentic and unapologetic and vulnerable and victim filled. And she's really never, I mean, maybe it's self-inflicted, but she's never gotten that opportunity. And I think we're all dying for her to say what's really to open going her heart, on. Right. Cause and, we want to help her. Right. Her fans love her so much. Like I love Brittany so much. She right. is our childhood. That's right. That I think you just nailed it. She is recording this. Well, I don't know. I'm not an expert on this, but I think you nailed it. She just never opened heart and let it really spill. She might not even know what that is. She might not even know how to, but I think that that song was it. Anyway. What was she like in you, person? You will hear it was because she... I, I'll tell you yeah. in a minute, okay. but I recorded that song for my album. You did? I just said. I can't wait any longer to give that song life. Album's called 2.0 for many reasons. It's the second coming and 
it's a second visiting of all these songs, but there are five songs that just never got recorded that I wanted to put out there in the world. What was she like? She was a little detached, Mm. very sweet, very gentle. I'd say very delicate, but I wasn't sure that she was completely present. Mm -hmm. Yes. That makes sense. Yes. You know, somebody with that kind of fame, she didn't grow up as a lot of very young pop stars with a sense of reality. They don't go shopping. They have vendors come to their home with racks of clothes. They have people go to the refrigerator to bring them a Coca-Cola because they're not used to getting things from themselves. It's just an unrealistic experience with the world. And my heart goes out. My heart goes out. I think it probably still goes on to a certain extent. You yeah. know, you know, there's like a whole f- quote unquote free Britney movement. And um, it's interesting. I wish she would have recorded your song and who knows, maybe someday she still will. Maybe she will. Maybe she'll hear it on 2.0 and maybe. just remember. You never you know. know. I, People say yes sometimes. Yeah. And you know what, Brittany, if you're listening to this, we'd love to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. So before we wrap things up, I do want to ask you about Sona. Yes. Now, you did you help found Sona? Yes. Okay. So tell me about what it is and how we can get involved. Well, Sona is Songwriters of North America, and we started about five or six years ago. Uh, we were four women. Uh, we didn't mean to be four women. We just were. We just noticed that our statements are going down in this digital economy, and how are we going to survive? Michelle Lewis and Kay Hanley were friends with Dean LaPolt, an attorney, and we went to her office and she said, where have you bitches been? Let's get started. <laughs> so we started going to Washington, D.C. and advocating to our representatives about, uh, listen to those beautiful birds. Yes, they wanted to join us. Maybe it's Brittany. Maybe. I was going to say, they want to cut us on too. <laughs> Starting to explain to them our side of intellectual property and copyright laws and division of that digital pie and that we weren't getting a, a fair share and there were these consent decrees and we're the only profession in the, in the industry in the, the United States that doesn't have a free market that can't determine for ourselves how much we want to charge for our music. And we started getting a seat at the table. There had been a lot of organizations that have felt like they were spoken for us, and they did to some extent, publishers and PROs and whatnot. But they spoke on our behalf when our interests aligned. And there were a lot of interests that pure songwriters had that weren't being represented. And we felt like we needed to start this organization to speak purely from a songwriter's interest. And so we did, and we weren't taken that seriously at first. People thought we were just another acronym. There's so many acronyms out there. But we sued the Department of Justice on 100% licensing. We were very instrumental in helping form the legislation for the Music Modernization Act. And we started getting asked to write briefs and getting 
asked to consult on all different issues. We fix one thing, something else jumps up. Spotify appealed the CRB hearing, which would give songwriters a 44% raise over the course of five years. I mean, Why it's did just... they, so that they wouldn't have to pay? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, and that's I happening think... on March 10th, right? By the time this airs, it it's... may have already happened, but. I think it's going to take a while to get through the appeal, but I believe it's going to start. So we would love songwriters to join us. We are Sona.com. And if you just type in SonaLA.com, we are Sona.com. It's going to come up. Even if you just Google it, because I did in anticipation of this, just type in S-O-N-A. It will come up. It will come up because we are high on the search engine Mm now. I'm happy to report. SEO, honey buns. That's right. (laughs) And, um... It's it's not very expensive to join. And if you can't get out of the studio, simply joining us would be helpful because you're funding something that's going to help service your career. Mm-hmm. How do you think you're going to make money from those songs? We are here busting our asses so that you could make money from that song. It just makes sense that you should support us even if you can't make it here physically. Right. Because we're trying to help you. And we, we need, need the funding. Yes. So we're now close to seven, 800 members over the course of five years. And we are getting lots of donations. And it's it's been extremely rewarding. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just such a great example that if there's something going on with your livelihood, your passion, your community, and you see something, do something. Yes. You know, it's another one of those you moments for you where you've, now. Yes, you've taken life into your own hands and seen a problem and said, I'm going to make a solution. So. I have a final question for you that I ask everybody. I believe creativity is intricately connected to the inner child. And so if you were standing in the same room as little Shelly, whatever age you think of her as, maybe it's the age you were when you first started playing those chords on the piano and singing over them, making your own melodies. If you two are standing there looking at each other, what do you think she would say to you and why? Keep fighting for my cause. Mm -hmm. Keep fighting for what I want, what I want to be, who I want to love, who I want to love me back. Make a difference. Put words together that resonate, that people can identify with. And she'd probably thank me for sticking with it. Yes, she would. And if you could say anything to her, what would you say to her and why? Uh, Don't be afraid of growing up. Keep leaping. I hope you dance. Thank you so much, Shelly. My pleasure. You're amazing. Fun talking. Thank you for listening. And thanks to my guest, Shelly Pikin. For more info on Shelly, follow her at Shelly Pikin. That's at S-H-E-L-L-Y-P-E-I-K-E-N. Pre-save her song Notebook at the link in her bio and find her rendition of What a Girl Wants along with her other singles everywhere good music is found. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, follow it on Spotify, and if you really like the show, post about it on your Instagram stories. Tag at Unleash Your Inner Creative and at Lauren LaGrasso and I'll repost to share my gratitude. Remember, my new single, Rise, is out now. Get it wherever you get your music. My wish for you this week is that if you're still in the grind, you take a moment to thank yourself for hanging in and realizing the extra time you're spending in the process of quote unquote making it is making you a better artist, entrepreneur, and all around creative. Timing is always divine. You're on your way. And remember, 
Follow what pleases you. I believe in you. Talk next week.